Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Happy to be joined today by Josh Blank, research director of said Texas Politics Project. Here with the water back on at your house. Yes. And that's, it was, you know, if not everybody here is from Austin. Right. We, we had a bit of a water issue. Right. Seawide. Uh, you know, everybody's looking one direction for in infrastructure collapse and it came from another. Yeah. I mean, I like, you know, watching the Twitter, the Twitter versus the water thing was starting the, you know, the mixture of, you know, people panicking and running to the store. And then there's people, you know, and I say my wife is very thoughtful about these things and was scared weeks ago when you start to see these supply chain issues in the grocery store. But I know this started, I'm like, oh, do we need to do anything? She's like, very proudly, no, we're not going anywhere. <laughs> right. Well, we happen to be out of town for most of it. So, you know, I'm glad you were prepared. I guess we'd have been okay. We had cases of water and stuff, but at least beer, but I'm tired of it. The beer I mean, is I just, I just get tired like this, you know, last night I was like, I, you know, I'm not going to make dinner and wash dishes with boiled water and well, the whole thing being in the end. I mean, we'll what? stop. We'll stop the conversation, but that is the ultimate disruption. I mean, if you have small kids who like you need to feed, it's not fun in any way. And then you end up, you're like, all right, I guess we're doing the freezer meal. And yeah. after like a couple nights of that, it's just, yeah, yeah, it well, gets lulled. We went someplace where they make and, and, and got a pizza someplace where they have lots of boiled water on hand, which is a... <laughs> The neighborhood brewery. So, uh, I guess we should give a plug to our friends at the ABGB. On, Always with old, boiled old, water. Old Torf near South Lamar, um, and that that is a non-sponsored. That's just that's a non-paid product placement. Um, <laughs> maybe I should get get hold of them though. Uh, I'd yeah. love to make That'd this the, AB, the ABGB second reading <laughs> podcast. Um, so today we thought uh, we'd talk about a topic that that Josh and I have talked a lot about and it's come up in the podcast with you and I with other guests um and that I think you and I have promised to get back to it's when we've got a long list of well we'll put a pin on that there's a lot of pins and a lot yeah. of pins in this podcast but um we're going to we're going to go back to one today and that's the subject of the partisan allegiances and voting behavior of Texas Latinos or Hispanics or Latinx per No not Latinx. Well, I mean, well, no, I you no. know, I, I don't you're not supposed to for some people, but others you're still supposed to. I hear that's out, but we'll, we'll, we'll put a pin on that. We'll put a pin <laughs> on that for later. Come back to that one. Um, this is one of the recurring themes, you know, more specifically, though, in coverage of the 2020 election, approximately, that's now popping up in, in a big way as 2022 unfolds. So the real trigger for this coverage, I think, again, only most proximately. Um, as we'll say later, I'll just say it now. I mean, this has been a recurring theme and discussion of Texas politics for quite some time. And that is, you know, what what can we expect from Hispanics in terms of their their partisan allegiance and their voting behavior? But the more proximate trigger was Trump's showing in the Rio Grande Valley against Joe Biden in the last presidential election. Um, you know, I think for our part, we've been mulling this for a while and talking to reporters as we do now and again. 
and been skeptical of, you know, what has become to me a trope that there's a fundamental opportunity for Republicans to move a sizable share of Hispanic voters in their direction. And it's really playing out, I think, in this cycle in looking at congressional, in particular, House, uh, state House elections to a lesser degree, Senate elections. And of course, while anyone who follows Texas politics has heard this before, this whole discussion has really experienced a resurgence in recent months, in part because of not only attention from the press in Texas, but the press outside Texas. Now, you've done a lot of digging on this and compiled a bunch of data. So let's start talking about what you found. Let's let's start in the RG in the Rio Grande Valley. What do you say? Okay. So, I mean, the first thing to kind of note when you look at the election results in, in the Rio Grande Valley is that there's no evidence that Democrats were were losing or hemorrhaging Hispanic voters if you look at the data. Uh, ultimately, the Democrats increased the number of Hispanic votes they got in the RGV from 2016 to 2020. The big thing was is that so did Republicans, and Republicans did it at a much, much faster rate. So whereas in 2016, Democrats in the Rio Grande Valley got about 191,000 votes. In 2020, they got about 203,000. So not a big gain, but 10,000 more voters in an area that say that's pretty small. And again, 10% of 190,000 is like 200. You know, you're talking about 5% of the increase. That's not right. small. Republicans, though, had about just under 82,000 votes in 2016 in the RGV. In 2020, they got almost 150,000. That is a humongous increase. But I think the first point to take away from this, it's not as though Democrats were losing votes in the region. They were increasing their their numbers. It's just that they weren't increasing their numbers as fast as Republicans. Republicans were very successful in this campaign at finding, uh, I would say, Republican-leaning Hispanic voters in the Rio Grande Valley. And that's what I think this data kind of points to when we just look at the RGV. But the second kind of big thing to take away from this is that the RGV is a really, really small share of the right, Before you go into that, let's, I, yeah, I do no, want to give some, I, I want to give a little something to the people that have noticed no, please. this. Just because one of the things, you know, that, that did come out in the data you compiled is that the Democratic advantage did decrease pretty significantly from 2016 to 2018 to 2020 from in those years. 38, you know, the, the Democratic advantage was about 38 and a half point percentage points in 2016. Stays roughly the same, 34.79 in 2018, but then does drop to 15 point, you know, about 15.1% in 2020. Now, those are still Democratic advantages, but, you know, I think if you're looking at just that column... Mm-hmm. And just the Rio Grande Valley, you know, that's that's worth noticing. It's fair. It's absolutely worth noticing. And but, <laughs> but, and you know, and here's the thing: we'll we'll definitely put a pin in this and come back to it. But before in this in this podcast, even. But before we do that, I think you know what the point I was about to make, and you're setting me up on this, is that the RGV is such a small share of the Texas electorate. And in fact, when you look at all the votes cast in Texas in 2020 in these counties that make up the RGV, only 3.21 percent of the total votes cast in the state came from this region, which. Leads to some pretty important questions here, right? Right. Okay. So the main question that we want to ask at this point, you know, is the RGV, are these results representative of Hispanic sentiment statewide? And is it enough to support either the proposition that Republicans are making gains or the Democrats are losing some of their allegiance among Hispanic voters, right? And so there's a bunch of different ways we can look at this. And the idea is let's look at all the ways relatively, relatively briefly. So one thing we can do is we can look at exit polling. Now, you and I have talked many times about the accuracy of exit polling. It's got strengths and weaknesses, but it's a a relatively consistent data source. We can go and say, hey, if there's a big shift in sentiment, maybe we would see it here, right? right? Not as precise as we'd like, but not crazily wrong in all likelihood right. in most in most circumstances it, it tells us for some, most broad measures it tells us something in, 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 con- in conjunction with other sources of data you know let's see if it tells us a different story or if it reinforces the story 
So if we look at this, we can go and look at the exit polling going back to 2004. And I'm looking in particular at the Democratic advantage among Hispanics. So basically, there's a Democratic vote share, there's a Republican vote share. Subtract the Republican vote share from the Democratic vote share. That's the Democratic advantage in points. And when we look at it, when we look at 2020, what we see is kind of an average election, really. Democrats were plus 18 in the exit polls. The overall average going back to 2004, and I should say 2012, there was no exit polling data in Texas. So it's a missing point of the data. But the overall average going back to 2004 was about plus 20, a plus 20 advantage for Democrats. Uh, in midterms, the average is plus 18. So the fact that in 2020 we had a plus 18 advantage, really it actually looked more like a return to normal. What was abnormal in a lot of ways was the 2016 and 2018 elections in which the Democratic advantage swelled to you know 20, 35 points in 2016 and 29 points in 2018. The flip side of this is if we go back to 2004, 2006, the Democratic advantage was only about a point maybe 10 points. And so in some ways, it's hard to say that, you know, this is a major swing. If anything, it looks a little bit more like a return to normal. And the previous elections were actually a little bit more unusual, right? And is this, let me ask you, I, and I don't remember how you pulled this. Yeah, sure. um, Is this top of the ticket or just reported party identification in the exit poll? This is top of the ticket. Okay. So, so for example, in the 2018 cycle, in this case, I'm looking at the Senate race because it was okay. a much more competitive race. Right. So this is not the Abbott, Lupe Valdez race in 2018. This is in the which Abbott just did considerably better. Yeah. And I mean, among it, Hispanics. Yeah. And I can justify this by just saying, look, you know, Lupe Valdez did not run a terribly serious competitive campaign that cycle. Uh, you better know, work better work did. And so I think what we're trying to look at is what does it look like in a competitive election? Ultimately, you know, if it's not a competitive election one way or the other, none of this stuff really matters on either right. side. Okay. So we can also look at, at our own polling. We have a lot of UT polling going back over many election cycles. So what I'm looking at here is top of the ticket trial ballots in October before the election. So just before the election in October, we usually do some polling. We ask people who they're going to vote for. Same thing in 2018. I'm looking at the Senate race because it was right. more, the closer race. And here, you know, we tells you know a pretty similar story. I'm looking in this in this case at the again the democratic advantage among Hispanic voters in each of these final trial ballots. And I should say I, and I'll add this when we write this up, you know when we look at the overall accuracy of those trial ballots and the democratic advantage overall or disadvantage really statewide and look at the final results, the polls are pretty close. So yeah. we have reason to believe that the subsample of Hispanics is probably pretty accurate as well. And what we find again in 2020 the <laughs> interestingly compared to the exit polls, the Hispanic advantage among Democrats was 17 points, 18 yeah. points in the exit poll. We have 17 points here. You go back to 2018, it was 27 points. You back to 2016, it's 23. Again, those were pretty big outliers. Look at 2014, the Democratic advantage, plus two. 2012, it was even in, term, in our polling, at least, right. right? And this, you know, again, goes along with the exit polling numbers, but it shows again that, you know, this regression in some ways from the, the, you know, the heady days for Democrats of 2016 and 2018 to 2020 is not so much necessarily a big shift, it's actually a little bit more of just, I don't know, I would say, again, a regression to more normal times a little And you bit. said 2016 and 2018. So is is there a presidential midterm pattern here? It doesn't seem like it. I don't think so. I mean, I'll say this. I mean, it's a pretty small, I mean, look, it's a pretty small. It's a small, it's a small, and it's a small sample size. I mean, the thing I'll say this is, you know, the thing that strikes me from this data is not so much that 2020 is so telling about politics in our state, but the 2016 and 2018 were so weird. Yeah. And were such strange outliers. So, I mean, this is something that I think is kind of important to note here is, you know, what we find in polling about, you know, the attitudes of Hispanic voters is sort of a starting point that I think people are kind of failing to recognize, right? Yeah. No, I think that's right. I mean, you know, I could have said this at the outset. I mean, this has been something that's been out there that we've been skeptical of for a long time that, 
you know, people both overestimate the degree of Democratic advantage or, or the hold that Democrats have on Hispanics mm-hmm. and underestimate the, you know, Republicans record with making inroads into the Hispanic population. I, and making inroads is probably the wrong figure of speech, that there's actually a pretty already a pretty reasonable baseline there. Yeah. And I mean, I would say this, too. I mean, one of the things that Republicans have, I mean, there's like a lot of advantages Republicans have in this. But one of the things that they have going for them is that because as a party, they've been successful in the state for a long time without really relying on maximizing their vote share among Hispanic voters. It hasn't been, I would say, a major priority of their election campaigns, especially statewide. What you're seeing now is a focus, you know, especially in these areas along the Rio Grande Valley. And there's a lot of political advantages to that that we could talk about and that we probably have talked about. But, you know, part of it is there's just more opportunity for Republicans to go out and find Republican-leaning Hispanics because they haven't been trying to do it. You can look at the Democratic Party and say whether or not they've been successful at mobilizing low-propensity Hispanic voters over time, right? But they've been trying for quite a while. Right. So there's a little bit less to be gained to be had there. Now— It also makes me wonder a lot about, you know, I mean, this may be a slightly different way of saying what you're just saying, but, you know, that— Part of the problem here is our assumption about low propensity Hispanic voters. Yeah. I think and the fact hard. that they are automatically Democratic. Right. That if you go out and you start knocking on doors based on, you know, no insults to anybody's product, but, you know, based on Catalyst or based on, you know, whiz bang, you know, modeling or, or algorithms, that there's going to be a pretty high error for margin and you might actually be mobilizing people that. From a strategic perspective, not a civic perspective, you're not really aiming to mobilize. Yeah. And I mean, anecdotally, you know, knowing as we we know some reporters who've done, you know, reporting over this over the last couple of cycles and some of the efforts to mobilize low propensity Hispanics. And most of the stories end with something like, yeah, they knock on the door expecting the voter to be, you know, something and find out something else, something entirely different. Yeah. So, you know, not surprisingly, the data is a little spotty. When you start to talk about, you know, some of these times low propensity voters. Right. Okay. So you cut this up a different way, though, to kind of get some more nuance on this, right? Well, yeah. And so part of it is these are all estimates. And so what I wanted to do was is not just rely on the Rio Grande Valley. So instead of just looking at the four counties that make up the RGV, what I did was I wanted to look at the counties where the census tells us that Hispanics make up either a majority of the popu- the adult population in the county, uh, at least 65% of the population in the county, at least 75%, and at least 90%. So counties that we can think of, and these are not mutually exclusive from each other, should be sort of obvious. But the idea here is to see, you know, as we look at, you know, his, uh, counties that are overwhelmingly Hispanic or marginally Hispanic, do we see the same pattern that we see in the RGV? So the short story of this is to say, you know, it tells much of the same story as the RGV, right? So both Democrats and Republicans are increasing the number of voters that they're pulling in between 2016 and 2020, and Republicans are just seeing a bigger increase, and in some cases, a substantially larger increase. So one of the things I want to look at was what was the increase in voters in each? What does that look like? So if we look at counties where Hispanics make up a majority of the adults, Democrats increased their raw number of votes by 21 percent, or just under 22 percent. Republicans by 40. If we look in the counties where Hispanics make up 90% of the vote, or of the adult population, Democrats increase their total votes by 3% versus 97%. That is amazing, right? That is the, you know. But there's a big problem here, which is, again, the, the counties that make up, or that are made up of 90% or more of Hispanics are a very small number of counties. I think it's less than 10, and it's less than 10% of the overall voting population. Right. So we're talking about a small thing. So when you actually look at the numbers of this. Most of the RGV 
counties are in that set. Oh, right? yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, this we put a pin in something. We're going to come back to it now, actually. We're going to do better follow-through in the new year, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> okay. so Shorter turnaround on the pins. So if you look at basically, you know, how many votes we're actually talking about here, what it means is in these different counties, you know, a majority Hispanic up to 90% or more Hispanic, you know, Democrats are adding, you know, about 6,000 votes in the counties that are 90% or more Hispanic. In the majority Hispanic counties, they had 186,000 votes. For Republicans, they had six, almost 68,000 in the counties with 90% that are 90% Hispanic or higher. They had a 238,000 in counties that are at least majority Hispanic. And so you can do a net here. We can say, well, okay, Democrats sure. had this many, Republicans had this many. How, what's the Republican advantage that came out of all this? And all of the net advantages are Republican advantages because they have so much room to grow. Right. right? And so, yeah. yeah, exactly. And so it's it's an advantage to Republicans within these counties of between 53,000 and 88,000 votes. Okay. So we say, okay, you know, there's support at least for the, at least for part of the story here. Republicans are making gains among Hispanics, but it's not because Democrats necessarily are showing some sort of weakness with Hispanics. It's really about the fact that uh, Republicans are probably want have more Hispanics that they can start talking to for the first time and mobilizing, and they're really investing in the effort in a way that they're finding more voters. But I think this kind of collides with another story in Texas politics, which is about you know the role of the cities and the suburbs in, in sort of the political com- competition here, and especially the increase in competition in the suburbs. So if we look at either you know the six core urban counties, the big six, where you know Austin and Dallas and Houston, San Antonio and El Paso are, and the counties that we can define as suburban, we see the opposite pattern. Now again, this is sort of what we were talking about right. in 2016 and 2018, right? The frame matters. Well, and the frame matters. And but here's the thing. first I'm gonna say the frame matters, I'm gonna say, and the numbers also should matter, right? So the right. frames in this case, we look, we say, you know, how many That what was is, a spoiler alert. I know, it's okay. It's good. <laughs> how do we, you know, how how much did uh, what is the percent increase in the Republican votes in the big six counties? Well, they increased their vote between 2016 and 2020 by about t- just under 24%, Democrats by 32%. So a little bit more for the Democrats. In the suburbs, Republicans increased it by just under 32. The Democrats by just under 56%, so a much bigger increase. Now, if you take these into raw votes and add them up, what is the Democratic advantage out of these gains in voters? Well, in the big six, it's 342,000 votes, a little bit more. In the suburban counties, it's another 45,000. So before we were talking about the Republican gain in votes because of their increased performance in the RGV, we're talking about 50,000 to 80,000 vote Republican gain here. When we talk about Democratic vote shares and their increasing competitiveness in the cities, not in the cities, but their increasing turnout in the cities and their increasing competitiveness in the suburb, we're talking about a Democratic vote share of almost 400,000 votes. So net, really, when we're talking about what's been going on in Texas politics and the dynamism here, if we focus on the Hispanics, it sort of fits into this, again, a story. Something that's interesting to people, but it's not really the whole picture. And when we look at the broader sort of, when we think about what's most, you know, where are the, the competition points in Texas, we'd say definitely... The emerging Hispanic electorate, which is you know, going to be a majority, certainly in the population soon enough, and will increase their share in the electorate. We're talking about turnout in the cities and the role of sort of cities in the broader state, you know, kind of political constellation. And we're talking about competition in the suburbs. And when you look at all three of those things at the same time, even if Donald Trump had a, you know, had a good 2020 in the RGB, and even if you know, the Republicans here had a good showing in Hispanic counties— the story is still much the same, which is the Democrats are picking up a ton of votes in the cities and the suburbs. And actually, that's kind of the story in some total. So this really, you know, I think raises some questions about choices and sort of the coverage and, as you said, the framing of this race. Yeah. I mean, I as we're going through this again and we've talked about it, and I'm thinking about, you know, there's a grossly oversimplified way of thinking about this. But it, you know, it does remind me of the discussion that we've been having about how parties during campaigns – try to shape, 
you know, the issue agenda to comparative advantage. Mm -hmm. They also try to shape media coverage to comparative advantage. Mm -hmm. So when we look at these numbers, it shouldn't be surprising that when you talk to, you know, a lot of people that are trying to, you know, seed coverage of 2022, people that lean to the right want to talk about gains among Hispanics. Mm -hmm. All things being equal. People that lean to the left want to talk about gains in the suburbs right? and the increasing shift to the cities. Now, what's great, I think, about having this data, and we'll, we'll post this data on the site. We'll, you know, we're going to put together a post on this, but given that we've got some other things going on, maybe even add just some of these tables yeah. to a quick post when we post the podcast. Yeah, if we can do that. You know, so if you if you heard this podcast on one of the platforms on Spotify, um, I guess, I, yes, we're still on Spotify. I think we are. I think yeah. we're okay. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, et cetera. If you go to our website at the Texas Politics Project at, at texaspolitics.utexas.edu and go to the blog section, what we'll do is we'll put together a post that has a link to the podcast and has some of these tables so you can look at some of the data. You don't think they remembered it all from my recitation? No. I, well, I think I'm sure everybody was taking notes. They're going to they're gonna listen repeatedly. <laughs> um, but you could also just hit pause right now. <laughs> Go to the website and then go back and listen again and then follow along. Okay, um, that's a good idea. Uh, that's that's a, actually an educator. I was gonna, you are an educator. I was there thinking you go. That. You know, we'll I'll, I'll I'll promote this that way. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, and, and it really does un, you know underline the point to which you know news coverage is you know to be you know a gross social scientist you know endogenous to the campaigns, right? Right. And that, you know, and, you, and you've been saying this a lot. I mean, I think you've, you know, you sort of made the argument that the following of the storyline is actually something shaping campaigns. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, so basically there's two. And, and maybe even political behavior. Yeah, I think there's two ways this story really, you know, I think it helps Republicans in a couple ways. And, you know, I have to be careful exactly how I phrase this. Um, but first and foremost, I mean, if, if Democrats and Republicans to a large extent are looking to turn out low and lower propensity Hispanic voters. What I mean by that is just Hispanic voters who are not as likely to vote, right, as opposed to, say, right. so, you know, someone who you know, votes every time. And, you know, again, the campaigns know who those people are, right? right. Well, then ultimately, you know, what, you're, what you know about these people is that their attachment to politics is probably relatively low. And so if the media coverage that they're hearing, you know, all the time is, you know, in the McAllen Monitor or whatever is, oh, you know, Republicans are making gains among Hispanics in South Texas or Republicans have, and this is something that has gone on. There's a story about that. Republicans have gotten uh, Hispanics to run uh, in the Republican primaries for multiple kind of lower level offices in and around the region. Well, then if you know you don't really know much about it, then that shapes kind of what your what your you know what your status quo starting point is on this. Which is you say, well, I don't really know much about politics, but I, I, I hear uh, Republicans are making you know really making inroads with Hispanics down right. here. So it, it softens the ground for when the campaigns actually eventually make the contact with these voters. And so this story in and of itself is is pushing along the narrative that actually helps the campaigns achieve their goal, which is to turn out these low again low propensity Hispanics right. who might be amenable to the message, right? And then I think you know for the rest of the electorate again because I'm saying this is a small share, it's never bad to have a Republican candidate. Uh, in the Rio Grande Valley or along the border talking about immigration and border security and beaming those messages back up to Midland and back to East Texas right. and back to Collin County. Totally fine. And so it really it solves both both issues at once, which is it mobilizes you know your core constituencies, but also allows you to kind of push along this narrative that no, you know, we're we're here for you. Yeah. Although there's a lot of big, you know, there's a, there's a lot of funny big 
picture implications to looking at all these in terms of the big the big narrative arcs that we're being asked to to consider here. I mean, you know, as you look at notable but not huge democratic advantages. I mean, obviously big democratic advantages in the big six urban areas. There's not yeah, no thing about that. But especially in the, that suburban number, you know, I mean about a you know, about a five-figure, you know, a mid-five-figure advance um, for the Democrats in that 2016-2020 figure, about, you know, just sh- you know, shy of 46,000 votes. You look at the numbers that the Republicans are gaining, again, five figures. Uh, when you look at those Hispanic gains, those gains among Hispanics and the different population share cuts, I mean, it really does underline the sense to which there are shifts going on in Texas, and everybody wants to talk about mm-hmm. the shifts and predict what they are. But even more, I think, tellingly, make assumptions or claims about the pace of those shifts. This is happening slowly, well, and right? Yet- but both, you know, whether you want to tell a story about Republicans making gains among Hispanics or you want to tell a story about Democrats, you know, taking over the suburbs, mm-hmm. both of those are very incremental things going on right now. They, I'm not saying they don't matter, but neither one of these is the Rosetta Stone to understanding multidimensional change in Texas politics right now and in elections. They're, yeah, I totally agree. There are two points I want to follow up on that. Let's see if I can remember them both. I mean, the first is something I've said before, and this is really important, which is, you know, what hasn't changed here is the fact that Texas is just a much more competitive place than it was 10 years ago. And I think that's what the data tells you. You know, you can kind of look at, you know, you can, everyone is going to pick, and again, campaigns in particular are going to pick out a stat or a figure or some aspect of, you know, some number of the last N elections to kind of make the claim that this is what's really going on. But what's really going on is a more competitive electoral environment. And the fact is, if it weren't a more competitive electoral environment, you wouldn't see the Republican shift in strategy that's now focusing on what in and of itself is actually a relatively small share of the Pretty electorate. Pretty marginal, right. Right? Not marginal, but I mean, I would say not, but not, small. not an, you know, I'd say it's, it's, it's a complementary coalition to, yeah. to the major part of the coalition. That's fair. So one, I mean, in some sense, you know, their actions and the data point to the fact that the real story is what the story was before, which is that, you know, Texas is still more competitive than it has been. Is it less competitive because of redistricting? Certainly. But do we feel like, you know, Greg Abbott is going to have a harder election now than he had in 2018? Certainly. That goes without saying. The other thing I want to add, you know, you mentioned this whole trajectory piece of this. You know, this is like a little kind of, I think I should get close to the end here. And this is when it's perfect to bring in social science again. You can't draw a trend line through two points. Right. Right. And if anything, if you're looking back at the last few elections and thinking about the last three points, the last four points, the last five points, what you're seeing is Democratic gain, Democratic gain, Democratic gain, Democratic gain. And now in 2020 smaller Democratic gain. Really. And so, number one, it's not even, there's not a line that points in the direction of, you know, this, you know, things are trending in the Republican direction. I mean, look, Republicans are still the, you know, the, the you know, the, the, the majority party in the state, but there's nothing about the 2020 election that says, mm, you know, the Democrats, after gaining for election cycle after election cycle, they've hit the ceiling and now we're going the opposite direction. If anything, you say, well, the gains are still there. They're just a little bit slower. Republicans are counter-mobilizing, as you would expect. And so now the rate of change is a little bit slower. But even here, we're talking about a very slow rate of change. And we actually don't have the data to say, oh, this is actually a trend now. Right. And, and you know, that just gets that, you And into- this being that very specific piece about Republicans and Hispanics in Texas. Right. And that, and that, and that brings you to, you know, the, the competition between the parties and, and their, the, 
the comparison or the comparative levels of resources that have are very different yeah. in terms of trying to mobilize and cope with this situation right? and, and, and I'll, these fundamentals. And I'll be cruel. I'll say, you know, resources and competence. Yeah. You know. Well, you know, I try, you know, I guess when I'm in a nicer mood, I think of competence as one of the resource buckets I'm talking <laughs> well, that's about. that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> right. There are different buckets of resources. Yeah, sure. That's true. That's um, <laughs> you know, to, to be fair. So, you know, and, and again, I mean, this isn't to downplay the importance of the Hispanic vote or the Hispanic electorate. If anything, I think part of the implication of this is that it's that much more important. Yeah, I agree. But it looks very different. It's yet, you know, one of the things I like about the way you sorted this data out is that it's it's a different take on what has become one of the hoariest of cliches, and that's H-O-A-R-I-E-S-T. Okay. Thanks. Thank, um, thanks, Mr. Rogan. About the Hispanic vote, which is, you know, it's very, you know, it's heterogeneous. It's not monolithic. Right. It's not. And you have to look at that in, in, in a lot of different dimensions, mm-hmm. you know, and I think, you know, again, for a pinhead, that there probably is something about the comparatively rural nature Mm-hmm. of those smaller counties um, that is playing into Hispanic voter voter behavior and, and political identification. You know, and I think, and, and you raise, I mean, we need to get out of this, but I'll say, that's kind of the next thing I think I'm going to look at here, which is to say, you know, we can look at the new census data and we can actually see over this time period, not only look at where the growth was, but where the relative Hispanic growth in the population is. Because my guess would be that because most of the growth in Texas's population is taking place in the urban and suburban areas, whether through, you know, migration, births, deaths, et cetera, my guess is, is that if most of that population in Texas, growth growth in Texas is being driven by non-white populations, which we know it is, 95%, most of the population growth we're talking about in a lot of these centers where Democrats are doing better is also going to be driven by the non-white population. Right. So, which is, again, which I'd say, I don't have this data here. It's a little unfortunate, but that would actually push directly in the opposite direction of the conclusion being drawn from the RGV and other much more rural parts of the state. Yeah, I think that's a, I, yeah, I, I suspect that that is going to be- That was your idea. I want to say that was your idea. <laughs> well, you know. I, I'm getting to it. But nonetheless, you know, uh, you know, who knows who has what idea well, in, yeah, this, I don't know. in this, in this relationship. <laughs> um, so I think with that, We're going to wind it up. And, you know, if you've made it this far in the podcast, we'll give you an Easter egg. By the time we have another podcast out, we'll have new polling data for you to look at from a new University of Texas, Texas Politics Project poll. So keep an eye out. Not sure exactly when we'll roll that out, but certainly by the next time you you listen to one of these, um, we'll be talking about new data. So with that, thanks to Josh for being here. Uh, Thanks to our crew in the audio studio here in the Liberal Arts Development Studio in the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas. Thanks to you for listening. And again, remember, texaspolitics.utexas.edu to find more of the data we're talking about and to find poll results next week. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.